Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We must scatter the fleet. We have no recourse but to surrender. Are we really talking about disbanding something that we've worked so hard to create? We can't just give in. Joined an alliance, not a suicide pact. We've only now managed to gather our forces. Gather our forces? General Draven's already blown up an Imperial base. A decision needed to be made. If it's war you want, you'll fight alone. If that's how it's going, why have an alliance at all? If she's telling the truth, we need to act now. Counselors, please. It is simple. The Empire has the means of mass destruction. The Rebellion does not. A Death Star? This is nonsense. What reason would my father have to lie? What benefit would it bring him? To lure our forces into a final battle to destroy us once and for all. Risk everything. Based on what? The testimony of a criminal. The dying words of her father, an Imperial scientist. But don't forget the Imperial pilot. My father gave his life so that we may have a chance to defeat this. So you've told us. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah. What is she proposing? Just let the girl speak. Send your best troops to Scarif. Send the rebel fleet if you have to. You need to capture the Death Star plans if there's any hope of destroying it. You're asking us to invade an Imperial installation based on nothing but hope. Rebellions are built on hope. another episode of Full of Sith. Uh, this is your host, Brian. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not with uh, everyone else at the moment. This is uh, another recording we got at Salt Lake Comic Con. And this one is uh, the history and politics of Star Wars with myself, Holly Fry, Matt Martin uh, from the Lucasfilm Story Group, and E.K. Johnson, who wrote the Ahsoka book. And uh, this um, episode might not be for everyone, um, I certainly think it's it's an important thing to talk about, uh, but you all sort of know where I stand. We've done a, a few of these history and politics episodes over the years, and uh, I find looking at Star Wars through that lens is super important. And, you know, going back and listening to it, um, it creates conversations. You know, there's things that I said or assertions I made on this, uh, this panel that uh, I'd rethink a little bit or maybe frame differently or talk about in a different manner. Um, I think I've learned a lot by engaging with people after discussions like this uh, in that I would I would maybe phrase some things differently or do anything different. But, but uh, we wanted to provide this to you anyway uh, to just kind of show you what this panel was like and hopefully get you thinking and hopefully having you uh, get into those conversations about what Star Wars can mean what it's meant to our past, how the past influenced it, and how it, it uh, has affected politics both, or how politics have affected it both in the past, and how it can serve as a warning in our present. Uh, so if that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, um, some might argue that maybe that's exactly what you should be listening to, but uh, giving you as much opportunity to uh, decide you want to turn back now uh, if, if you want to. But uh, I assure you this was a very good, fun panel and uh, enlightening. So without further ado, here's the panel. My name is Brian Young. 
I do a Star Wars podcast with Holly over there called Full of Sith, and uh, I'm a contributor to StarWars.com and, and Star Wars Insider and really like Star Wars. But for a long time, uh, my, my professional background before that was in political documentary and writing uh, editorials for, for outlets and things uh, about politics and history, and uh, I'm the author of a children's illustrated history of presidential assassination. Um, so... This panel just kind of like meshes all of my interests, which is why I really wanted to do it. And these people are really smart, and I would like them to introduce themselves, and then we'll have a discussion about Star Wars history and politics. And it will get historical and political, so I apologize in advance. Hi, I'm Matt Martin, part of the Lucasfilm Story Group. Um, I think I learned most of my history through Star Wars, so I'm not sure if I'm entirely qualified to be on this panel. (laughs) But you would be amazed how often we actually reference real-world history when, when coming up with stories. So I feel like I've learned a lot now. Uh, my name is E.K. Johnston. I wrote Star Wars Ahsoka. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think I'm here to be the token Canadian. That's wait, wait, wait. Are we talking about Canadian politics? Well, I mean, like, I can't really talk about American politics. It's all these <laughs> the whole time. No, you're here because we like talking about this stuff okay. with you. Yes, okay, cool. I'm here You're too. a wonderful conversationalist about this stuff. <laughs> um, I'm Holly Fry. I host a podcast called Stuff You Missed in History Class, um, as well as Full of Sith with that doofus down there. Um, with love, I see This is that. the last panel of the night. This is, I see how right? it's going to go. I always tell people, if I'm always nice to you, that's when you should get suspicious. Um, uh, and we also host a fake history podcast called Authentic History, where we talk about fake history as though it were real. Yeah, no, I, uh, our first episode of that show, we deconstructed the Battle of Hoth uh, from a serious historian's perspective as though it were like a World War II battle. Yeah. Um, and, and it's true. I mean, like, if you look at all the victory conditions of Hoth, like, the Empire lost every single one of them. Like, that was not a crushing victory for the rebels in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't. No, you're, you're completely <laughs> true. Really, neither of, of the sides really fared well on that. I, mean, I guess kind the of rebellion got away. Well, the rebellion knew that they were coming. They knew that they had to evacuate. And they knew that they had to delay the ground troops long enough for them to evacuate. And all of that happened. The, the Empire, their mission objectives were to destroy <laughs> the rebels... And failing that, capture Han and Leia and the Millennium Falcon. And failing that, capture Luke Skywalker. And failing that, uh, mildly inconvenience the rebels. And that's about all they did. It's hard to be the bad guys. But no, I mean, it's interesting when you take that historical perspective and look at these events that play out on film. It seems really dramatic. And yeah, the Empire looked like they they took some names there. But uh, they lost every part of it. They did make the rebels homeless for a while. That's got to count for something. Yeah. They had ships. It's not like they didn't have shelter. They were homeless. It cost money ish. to keep ships running, homeless though. <laughs> Everything comes, everything's coming up piet, basically, by the end. <laughs> so um, I want to start with you. Like, When was the first time for everyone here on the panel that you realized that there were analogs to history in Star Wars, like real-world history? I think for me it was, it was told to me in a, in a class, like while I was in elementary school because I was reading the, the, the Hand of... or the Glove of Darth Vader series. Why? Yeah, because I was a kid and didn't know any better. <laughs> um, and I was reading it in class and my history teacher kind of glommed onto that and, and sort of introduced me to the fact that a lot of it is based on, on real-world history. And uh, since then, I'd always been sort of looking for it. Um, I'm not even really sure when it would have happened. Um, I missed all of the Vietnam stuff because I wasn't born yet. And um, I guess at some point the images probably... It was probably actually the first time I saw Indiana Jones because it would have been the first time I saw like Nazi uniforms on screen. And I was like, they look kind of like those guys from Star Wars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Several things make much more sense now. Um, and so I think it, for me it was definitely like a, more of an aesthetic realization than like a this is how history went for us as well. I had that realization in another movie last night. <laughs> like I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Prayer of the Roller Boys, 
But I saw it on the big screen last night. Um, yeah, they're, they're Nazis. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was told to me pretty early on. Um, A New Hope, which was then just called Star Wars, came out when I was six, and I was obsessed with it. And, you know, as a six-year-old that is also loquacious, I was constantly running my mouth. And and then the Stormtroopers are going to... And my dad was like, wait, Stormtroopers? You you know that's a thing, right? Like a thing in history. And I was like, no, it's not a Star Wars. And then, like, several years later, I was like, oh, now I get it. So it was told to me and then took three years to dawn on my slow mind. Um, For me, again... Um, like you, like I was sort of divorced from the Vietnam War, just having not been born yet. And it was like you hear about it, you're like, oh, there's an allegory for the Vietnam War. But because I had no context for the Vietnam War until I was much older, it was just like, sure, there were teddy bears in Vietnam. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until Phantom Menace came out, and there were these analogs to things. I mean, like I was a weird teenager, like I was a Star Wars junkie as much as I was a C-SPAN junkie. <laughs> I didn't um, even know that was a thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's totally oh, yeah, um, <laughs> I still do it. Like, I'll just, while I'm at work, I'll just have C-SPAN on. It's maddening. Um, but uh, so, so I realized that watching Phantom Menace, that there were people named after everyone I'd been watching on C-SPAN for the last decade. Like, <laughs> Newt Gunray and, and Lot Dodd from the Trade Federation are named after Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott, uh, the politicians from there. And so, like, when you go back and look at mid-90s politics and you look at uh, the problems that we're having now that George Lucas sort of predicted then that money in politics would be the big issue of the next era and then he created a system where the people who you know lobbying was a big problem lobbying is still a big problem and here we have this view of Phantom Menace where the lobbyists aren't lobbyists they're senators they have an equal seat at the table and that's part of that downfall of the republic and that just blew my mind. And that was one of the things, one of those entry points into the prequels for me that made me love it even more. And which was one of my big disappointments about uh, Force Awakens was that there was just not enough uh, political context. Fortunately, there's bloodlines for that. Yeah, yeah no, bloodlines. True. How many of you have read Bloodline? Oh, it's so good. I feel like if you're in this panel... It would be interesting to yeah. you. Yeah. Not only that, but Claudia Gray is here. Go seek her out, buy the book, and have her sign it. It's great. And, I mean, there was there's some really interesting political undertones in your Ahsoka book, too. I mean, although it was more overtly about Ahsoka, but the idea that an, uh, a government needs to, uh, an oppressive government needs to feed its troops, right? Like, do you want to talk more about that? Um well, the idea sort of came about because I was like, I just don't want them to be miners. I feel like there's been a lot of mining. <laughs> what, if, what if it was food supply instead? Um, and then someone on the other end of the phone was like, I just don't think nutritional yeast is a good plot point. And I was like, trust me. <laughs> okay? And, and then later on there was a note that was like, this is actually a really good idea. And I was like, thank you. Um, but it worked out pretty well. And I think approaching it from a food standpoint, because my... Um, sort of study of history has been prehistory and very early modern history. And when I say very early modern history, I'm talking like Phoenicians. Um, So like several thousand years ago. And for them, it was always food supply. And so to sort of incorporate that into a book where you just also happen to be able to travel faster than light was um, I found a really good way to ground it. Um, There's a lot of those touchstones through Star Wars to real life. And I'm wondering... Uh, if you if if you all want to talk about some of the touchstones, maybe to World War One or World War Two, I know I always sort of looked at the classic trilogy as sort of World War Two, uh, and the prequel trilogy and the breakup of the Republic into the Empire is sort of that that machine that uh, um, that post-war kind of thing, and it was sort of reversed. But now, as we get into Force Awakens, it feels much more World War Two now. Like, uh, I mean. There's no, it, there's no mistaking it that the ch- the chancellor of the Republic in Force Awakens is named uh, Villacham, which is the end and the beginning of Neville Chamberlain's first and last names. And his entire point is that he's appeasing the First Order and sort of ignoring the resistance and ignoring the problem. And uh, you know, it was a really interesting and relevant touchstone. So, so. Examples like that, what are some of your favorites that you've kind of caught and, and pulled out of the ether in Star Wars? That's a good question. Um, 
it's for me it's weird because a lot of it is retroactive um if you talk to claudia about bloodlines which i highly recommend um she talks a lot about how like she wrote like um like no one would ever believe neo-nazi groups would like get center stage again like that's ridiculous um and like that that kind of thing so i find for me i think one of the things that makes star wars so like enduring is that the retroactive power of it is that you can sort of look at that look at the thing while you're in the middle of a mess and be like maybe we should course correct <laughs> so that we don't end up like this um i love and it, it was one of those things i probably wouldn't have picked out on my own but it came out in sort of the the support materials that uh, Radis in Rogue One is based on Winston Churchill to some degree. And so to me, it sort of became very fun to watch him and how his, his leadership style really is quite similar to Winston Churchill. And, and if any of you saw Dunkirk, there's a, a whole lot of stuff about Winston Churchill and how he kind of framed England's position in the world story at that point and, and how it, there was a lot about self-sacrifice and, and about how everyone needed to, you know, kind of pull together and do what they knew was right, even though it was hard. And it's like, oh my, I mean, it's Rogue One at that point. Um, so to me, that was sort of one of the, the yummiest little nuggets amongst Star Wars films. And one little thing that kind of permeates the prequels is, is Padme as a character. And I always think of her as kind of like my ideal politician. And then now, especially with you know politics going the way it is, I'm constantly watching and looking and trying to find like, who are the Padmes of this? And I'm not having a lot of luck lately. It's kind of a bummer. But it's, it's led me to really view just politics in general in, in a completely different light, seeing um, how it was stalemated then, you know, in the prequels. We're so stalemated now, you know, in Congress. It's just, it, it's, it's almost too matchy-matchy at this point. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and there were a lot of those touchstones through the, through the prequels, I mean, to the point where, although George Lucas had shot Revenge of the Sith before George Bush had said it, but that line in Revenge of the Sith where um, Anakin says, you're either with me or you're my enemy, that was uh, an echo culturally of something George Bush had said during the wars previously, like, hey, you're, you're either with us or you're against us. And although George Lucas didn't necessarily plan that specific bit of happenstance, like, culturally, that's what we all saw. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, though, Star Wars is completely laden with history and politics, um, and there are a lot of people, I'm not sure they're necessarily in this room, but there are people who, who don't want to mix the two, and I'm wondering how difficult it would be to separate for you all, the idea that history and politics are, you know, hand in glove, part of Star Wars, and that Star Wars is trying to teach us something about our politics and our history. Yeah, I don't think it would be Star Wars without, without that. Even, you know, in the original trilogy where the politics are a bit more of an undertone, it's still clearly there, it's still clearly a motivation driving the plot. If you remove that, it's just not going to be as compelling a story, and I don't think it would have the lasting effect that it has. I think people... People get on board with Star Wars to some degree because it's something that maybe even subconsciously that they're relating to. And I think the politics is a big aspect of that. And I think like from the opposite direction of that, I sometimes have trouble talking about politics with people who haven't seen Star Wars because that's where all of my metaphors come from. <laughs> like sometimes the West Wing, but mostly Star Wars. Like, and so sometimes... like if you're trying to have a discussion or a debate with someone, and then I'll be like, it's like that time. Oh, wait, never mind. You haven't seen that movie. Um, and then it gets really awkward. But I feel like um, there's this thing called the Harry Potter effect, which is that kids who read Harry Potter, like, they have studied it, and they know that those kids uh, show more empathy in their, like, grown-up lives than um, kids who didn't read Harry Potter. And I think that Star Wars, hopefully, has a similar sort of effect on people, um, although it's probably too big to measure at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, it's bizarre to me when I bump into people who are like, I, we just need to stop talking about politics because it doesn't have to do with Star Wars. I'm like, well, the first, the entire driver is galactic conflict, which is politically driven. It, it's very strange to me. It's like saying, I would really like cake, but I don't want sugar or flour involved. <laughs> it's like, what? what? Why? Then what is, I mean, if people just like to see people firing blasters and swinging lightsabers, I guess that's cool, but you're missing out on like, the real depth and you know important um, 
life lessons that are conveyed through storytelling. Like that, it seems like a, a weird Wars, way to pick it apart. Star Wars can do both. Like sometimes when I just want background noise, I put on The Force Awakens, and every once in a while I look up and you're like, oh, they're so good at being friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you have that sort of like, if you want to sort of like take it apart and be like, why is it important that they're so good at being friends? You can. You can kind of have it both ways. Yeah, I don't think you have to have a critical eye every time you watch. Like, you can turn your brain off and just enjoy the fun adventure part of it, but you can't ever claim that it, it isn't there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going, just for everyone's uh, benefit, we are going to be taking questions. Uh, there are microphones on either side of the room. If you'd like to take questions... Uh, Come on up, but I'm going to ask a question of the panel. Is there a political, uh, is, there, is there a specific sort of political bit of turmoil that Star Wars helped you understand in a way that sort of like tempered your, your outrage? So I've got one, and I'm not sure I want to go into it, but we'll see where you guys go. I don't think it's ever tempered my outrage. No. <laughs> no, because like, you're like, if it was Star Wars, they would just like shoot them, and then the problem would be done. Yeah, I have plenty of rage to go around. I don't... (laughs) I want to hear your example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. Not a fan of Donald Trump. Not a fan of people who uh, voted for him. And after the election, I was very upset about it. Very upset about it. And I was hurt about it, too, because I thought our country was better than that. Like I said, we're going to get political. I'm sorry. Um... (laughs) But the way that I had to understand it is I couldn't say, like, everyone who voted for Donald Trump is a bad person. And it was Jar Jar who helped me get through that. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It always goes back I to knew, Jar Jar I knew that you. you were going up this. As soon as he started, I, I was like, he's talking to I this. love Jar Jar. Jar Jar is the most loyal and pure character in Star Wars, period. And Jar Jar makes a terrible decision that throws the galaxy out of balance from a place of goodness with misinformation. Anakin does the same thing from a place of goodness and misinformation. And so for me to come to terms with the fact that I have fellow Americans who felt that Donald Trump was an okay choice for president, they're all Jar Jar to me. (laughs) That I need to come to terms that the fact that they could be very good people that might have been misled. That makes me feel a little bit better, too. That does make me feel a little bit better. (laughs) Jar Jar for president. (laughs) So... To any of you in here who voted for Donald Trump, that's literally, like, the best compliment. Like, that's, that's, like, Star Wars helped me understand a little better. Yeah, if you don't grasp Brian's depth of love for Jar Jar, this was the sweetest thing he's ever said to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, questions. Okay, well, you kind of just answered my question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, Is it more Jar Jar? No, (laughs) not not, not directly. So, after... um, Trump got elected. I got really depressed, and um, and you know, I was thinking, you know, if someone this evil can be elected that high of an office, it felt like very, you know, like no hope. And then, and then when I saw Rogue One, I felt a lot of hope because people in that movie were feeling the same way. Like, if they have a Death Star, we can't have hope, right? And then, um, and then they're like saying, you know. You know what choice do we have? You know, uh, rebellions are built on hope and, and that sort of thing, and um, and that you know changed my perspective uh, in a big way. Uh, and so my question was was kind of going off of like like that, like like with Jar Jar or whatever. Like, is there something that, that not necessarily this election, but anything um, that is Star Wars has helped you change your perspective and. Um, uh, uh, change your life. I think Rogue One is a great example. Um, Rogue One really showed me that there is, well, all of the Star Wars movies are rooted in selflessness, right? But Rogue One is rooted in so much ultimate selflessness that it almost goes beyond Obi-Wan's sacrifice, right? Here is a group of people who don't have any special powers, they don't have any special connection to the universe or life itself or the mysteries of the world. They're regular people who are willing to sacrifice their lives to make the world that they will never see better. And that's absolutely something that I think we could all strive for, like that selflessness. And that's when you take that hand in hand with the prequels, right, where it's like capitalism and fear of, or uh, not capitalism so far, I mean capitalism, sure, but, <laughs> um, 
but money and politics and big moneyed interests and all of these things leading to that fascism of the empire because it's rooted in selfishness, the Sith are rooted in selfishness, that to see Rogue One as that counterexample that it's okay to sacrifice yourself to make the world a better place rather than accumulate more things, um, I think that was really powerful for me just as part of my moral compass generally. And I, that's a good answer. Thank you. <laughs> and just like on a personal note, every time, the whole time basically I was growing up, if there was ever a moment where I was like, this is terrible, I'd be like, what would Leia do? I do a similar thing, but minus Mon Mothma. Mon Mothma, yeah. Just because she's I so I think as an adult now, it would be Mon Mothma. She's so alien to who I am. I'm so much more like impulsive and rageful, and she is such a serene, wondrous, you know, completely together person that that has to be my kind of goal as a human like what would mom how would mom mom handle this i heard moment? she gets testy in season four <laughs> no feloni said that he's she like, starts clocking yeah. people and i'm like yeah this is my mom mothma <laughs> so i don't i don't think i have anything that really touches on politics for that but for me personally what i love about star wars and what i've tried to keep within myself is sort of a lack of cynicism because as you get older and as just becoming an adult, people get jaded and get cynical, and it's just a thing that happens. Um, Star Wars isn't cynical. Like, it's, it's very earnest for what it is, and when I realized that and realized the direction that I was going personally and just getting sort of cynical, I was like, no, I want to be more like Star Wars. <laughs> like, just Star Wars as a thing. And I think it's, it's helped me have a, a more healthy outlook on just about everything. Over here. Thank you um, for that question. Yes. So I was wondering about other, say, expanded universe events that reflected our world, kind of. I don't know. I don't know. The only. Go ahead. Hmm. Did you have I'm one? I'm the worst at the EU. Well, even Legends stuff. Not Legends stuff. Even the current yeah. canon. Yeah. Um, anything specifically. Um, I wanted to make a joke about finding an egg in a cave, but that didn't, <laughs> it kind of fell apart in if my head. You, <laughs> if you talk to Mike Stackpole, uh, who's here, who wrote the X-Wing saga, um, he will take it back to fighter pilots in World War II. And th- those were the sorts of stories that he was aping. I mean, Mike's never served a day in his life. And Mike doesn't necessarily... Well, he knows pilots, but he was never a pilot, and he was never in a war. And Mike is a gaming nerd and a writer. And it was reading histories and biographies of pilots in World War II that gave him those touchstones that he needed to create the X-Wing saga uh, as we know it. You know, like, uh, the same thing with all the espionage in there. Like, you'll see all of those touch. Like, everybody's borrowing from that history in, in all of the books, whether that's the history of... Uh, biology, you know, you look at any of the creatures that are created by the creature designers, right? Like, there's one of my favorite books is kind of like a history book called The Wildlife of Star Wars that uh, Tara Whitledge wrote. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's all these backstories of all of the reasons all of the creatures are the way they are, right? So, you know, the reek and attack of the clones, the reason it's all brown and then kind of red at the top is because it's an herbivore. And in order to make it attack, they came up with this history of how the uh, Geonosians uh, didn't feed it anything but meat, and so that red was color, you know, changing its 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 color and making it angry, and then not feeding it at all, so that it would attack the people in the arena. I mean, unfortunately, that was Anakin Skywalker. Uh, unfortunately for it. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, this makes me so sad for the animals. <laughs> but <laughs> don't read that book. Then. It's like, well, it's, oh, I have read that book. Yeah. But, it, but it, it's it, like Star Wars will make you love it, and then you'll be sad. But at every level, you've got people, whether they're working in the art department or creature design, or you know, look at Naboo. That's all classic, uh, you know, Italy or the books. Everyone is pulling from history because that's where we learn about things, just generally. One thing I think is really fascinating that we've had to handle differently in the EU versus the new canon is the post-Return of the Jedi era, especially right after Return of the Jedi, because it's really interesting to see what happens when an empire falls and who comes in to fill that void. And, um, you know, in the EU, you have all of these warlords taking over and kind of consolidating their power. In the new canon, it kind of becomes this relatively peaceful time until 
the First Order starts to rise up, and then it becomes a bit of a Cold War. But it's really interesting to see how much real world needed to be referenced to see, you know, what happens when something like that does happen. I've got a great answer for you, actually. In the comics, Shattered Empire, and everywhere else we've seen Palpatine's plan. What was the name of Palpatine's plan? Operation Cinder. Cinder. Operation Cinder. Uh, everything about Operation Cinder was sort of based on Hitler's orders for what would happen after he died. When Hitler died, he ordered everybody to just burn everything, you know, like... Uh, the, the last The last great movie I saw anything about this in, in case you're, you're interested, was Monuments Men, right? It was this group of uh, architects and artists and art professors who went into Europe to try to protect all of the art that the Nazis had stolen, and once the war was sort of over and the Russians were taking their parts and uh, everything was kind of going crazy, like... Hitler's orders were just like, burn everything. And like we, there was so much culture that we could have lost at that point that, that we didn't. And Star Wars has done a really great job with that, with, Pal- with Palpatine's plan. And you know, he was going to destroy Naboo, which would have been horrible. I love Naboo. If I had to live anywhere in Star Wars, it would be Naboo. Yeah, that wasn't a coincidence. That was something yeah. that was directly referenced. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Where are the Neberries? Just oh, hanging out. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, so this is a little uncomfortable, but the, uh, so I'll start with the joke. Since we have a Canuck on the panel in the uh, Star Wars universe, uh, who's closest to Trudeau? Who's closest to, to Trudeau? Trudeau. Trudeau. Gosh. Um, yeah, yeah, probably. He tries. Um, I think it's actually the other way around. Like, I think Trudeau wishes he was Bail Organa. <laughs> Um, who doesn't? I mean, yeah, really, honestly, who doesn't? But, like, um, I just finished Leia, Princess of Alderaan, so it's, like, at the forefront of my brain. And sometimes being next to things is super awkward. Um, and there's a lot of being next to things on, on Alderaan. Okay, so the more serious question is, um, if you're kind of paying attention to the political movements and that sort of thing, how do you ignore or kind of get around the racist stereotypes that are so prevalent in Phantom Menace? Okay. I have an opinion, but I'll let you so go let's, first. Let's Brian break is, this down. Brian has been locked and loaded for this question okay. for years. So, so let's take Jar Jar for an example, where Ahmed Best is what? sort of... Jar Jar? Bro- what? I know, right? Um, for, I, there was one sort of cultural tastemaker who said, hey, it's racist without actually going into any of the reasons behind why he might make that claim. And you've got Ahmed Best coming out and saying, like, no, it's not a minstrel show. Minstrel shows were white character actors putting on blackface on stage, and it's really hard to put blackface on a black person that's a digital character of a frog. (laughs) That's, like, that's kind of a bridge too far there. The dialect's, like, there's no, there's no, I've never, like, I've been to Jamaica. I've never heard anyone talk like that. I've never heard anyone close to talk like that. And there are stereotypes that kind of get in the same realm, but you've got literally a frog creature from under the water telling you these things. So they're, they're so divorced from what a lot of people were assigning into them that I know the intent was definitely not there, and I think you have to stretch to see it. Well, I, I'd have to disagree about the, the Trade Federation folks. I mean, they were obviously Mandarins, right? They're, well, no, I mean, no, no. I mean they, they weren't. I mean, they took, they took Duros, which existed in the galaxy for a long time, and it was Ben Burt who sat down and said, uh, how can we make them speaking English sound different? And so they recorded Asian actors doing British accents and then, and then re-recorded British actors doing those imitations. And it's what it is, they're Nemoidians, your mileage may vary. I think at some stage, um, intention sort of falls apart, um, and people were hurt by it, basically. And so it doesn't really matter what the intentions were. Um, this is where I disagree with Brian, even though he's always super nice to me. Um, because, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> oh, no, we're done. I, just, I just feel like... Um, and especially writing the Ahsoka book and thinking about like what I wanted to happen and things to avoid, um, I definitely tried to avoid more stereotypes. Um, 
and then because I knew that like at some point you might not have intended to do something that hurt people, but it still hurt them. And now we're kind of stuck with it. I mean, for me, like the negotiation, right, is I can acknowledge the problems without having to denounce the entire thing. Um, And it is. I mean, you have to be frank and be willing to say, like, yeah, that sucks. And I see where people came away from that feeling hurt and, like, they had somehow been been wronged. But it's like a baby with the bathwater thing, right? Like, I I would like to see it almost as a teaching moment. Like, this was wrong. Let's move forward and do something better in the future. It's kind of like how, you know how uh, Roger Ebert for a long time was campaigning for Disney to release Song of the South to film students to teach them how not to do things in the future. And I think kind of you can turn that eye to it and still be like, no, there's a lot of valuable stuff here. This part is problematic and let's all learn from it and go forward as like the bad example. I think you just have to. There's an essay called "How to Love Pre or How to Love Problematic Things," which yeah. I reread approximately once a month, um, and it talks a lot about how if someone says to you, "I find this problematic," you have to be like, "Okay," and change the subject. <laughs> but but I think that's part of it too. Like you're not going to get a consensus of any of the affected populations to say Phantom Menace is definitively problematic, right? So like even among the the populations who were admittedly in some cases offended, there's no consensus there either. Like, there never will be. Well, yeah. yeah. That's what makes us people. Yeah, I mean, the key, right, is to be a compassionate human being. And when someone says, this hurts and upsets me, you can't say, no, it doesn't. I mean, that's really, I think, where we fall into the conflict always, is you'll go, no, that was never that. It's never to hurt you. And it's like, but I still feel hurt, so something's happening. I th- again, I think it's a, a moment of acknowledging the other human and, and like accepting that their experience is real and valid. And actually, that can be, again, a great stepping off point to like discuss bigger, hard issues. Thank you. I managed to stay out of that completely, and I'm so <laughs> happy. <proud. laughs> Wait, we just had an adult conversation about that. And that's why I wasn't part of it. <laughs> Show us your pork tattoo again. <laughs> Um, so my question is, uh, first off, thanks. This is the panel I've been looking forward to almost as much as the last Jedi panel. <laughs> so this is number two. I wish you could be here all day for it. Um, but I've actually spent a lot of time kind of preparing for Comic-Con this week, actually thinking about this panel and who I feel like I identify with politically um, in the Star Wars universe. I think a lot of us kind of wish that we would you know, fight and die for our ideals like Padme or like Saw Gerrera and... Well, Saw Gerrera, that's... Uh, it's a little bit different. It might be one step too that's, far. Yeah. Let's not do yeah. that. Let's not, let's we don't want to be dreamers, per se, <laughs> but... Um, so my, my question uh, for you guys is, individually, who do you each feel like you identify with, kind of politically within that range? You know, from, I don't know, Mon Mothma to Saw Gerrera, how exactly, <laughs> where do you find yourself kind of falling in that, um, in that spectrum? So I was 14 when the prequel trilogies came out, and Padme taught me how politics work. (laughs) And so I think as a result of that, um, my political outlook and my political ideals are incredibly similar to hers. I I feel so (laughs) the exact same way. I don't have a different answer. I mean, it really is Padme. I mean, Padme there in the meadow explaining to Anakin, like, listen, you don't understand how, like, nuanced this is. Right? You don't understand how difficult it is to get a whole bunch of people to agree to something, especially when you're dealing with a galaxy, right? Um, and Anakin's just like, install a dictator, no big deal, we're done here. <laughs> and uh, what's sad is that he's kind of serious. He's very um, serious. Yeah. Um, so I think for Padme, it's, it's, it was really, Padme showed me that there's a lot of black and white. Uh, there's not a lot of black and white. It's all very gray. Everything's shades of gray. There were, I mean, Palpatine managed to get Naboo to vote for the Military Creation Act, right? Like, there's some shades of gray there. The same way we authorized use of force in Iraq, right? Like, why did all those votes happen? How did they happen and how, does, how do politics work that we have to compromise and sometimes give up something that's dear to us to get something more dear in return? And I think Padme's philosophy kind of wrapped that up quite, quite well. Padme is certainly the ideal. I think I'd probably lean a little bit more Leia. Um, 
just because I think I think given the situation that she was in, I would have probably gone a more assertive route than Padme, who tried to handle everything by the books, um, which is incredibly admirable, but doesn't always work. So I think um, while I wish there were more Padmes in the world, I think I'd lean a little bit more Leia. I do too. Um, also, have you guys read the new Leia book, Princess of Alderaan? Also because written by Claudia Gray. It's super amazing, but what's great about it and what sort of cemented that for me is particularly in her youth, and I won't give anything big away, but Leia makes some moves because she is inherently in her core a woman of action that just screw stuff up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that feels very familiar to me. Um, so I think, yes. There's also part of me that wants to say Han Solo, and this sounds weird, but walk through with me. You just um, want to be out of it entirely? Well, it's like, you know, you want to be divorced from all of this stuff because it's heady and it's exhausting. But at the end of the day, when you recognize the difference between good and bad, you have to take action. And so there's a little bit of that in there, too. Like, of course, everybody wants to escape all of this, but we can't. And then Leia takes over and get, grabs a gun. I, there's an interesting uh, quote that George Lucas talked about, about the political symbology of Phantom Menace, where uh, Naboo is the ideal of how politics should work, right? You have all of these capable older administrators helping advise someone with a young idealism who wants to do what's right, which is why they have an elected queen at a very young age. And the opposite of that are these literally crusty old white men clinging to power as long as they can and that's what we should be striving against we should be putting younger people into politics before they're jaded before the cynicism twists their mind until now they're something we don't want term limits yeah all right thanks guys yeah no term limits exactly does that answer your question okay over here my favorite example in star wars universe would be from lost stars which sort of takes the big picture view of, of politics, and it gives you the empire and the rebellion side. So you do get to see, you know, how some people react when Alderaan is destroyed. I hope everyone knows that happened. Um, <laughs> yes, spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> what? If you're in this panel and you don't know that, it's, what are you it's talking time. about, Alderaan? It was right here. <laughs> it's such a I, tranquil I, place. I, I, I just read Princess of Alderaan, like, it's still around. <laughs> I, th- I think that's the best sort of handling it and, and sort of taking that big picture view in Star Wars of how the politics and how you have people who are good people who still are, work for the Empire after they know what they've done, after they witness the Death Star, and you have other people who reacted to that very differently. And it, it's very, that's the most real political Yeah, totally. Story I think to me. that might be if not my absolute favorite, favorite, one of my favorite chapters in all of Star Wars books, if not all of literature that I've read. is, And it's completely for that reason. It's just seeing everybody's different perspective on this horrible thing that happened and how people, some people are able to kind of explain it away and make themselves okay with it, while other people are completely unable to do that. Claudia made me understand how someone could see the destruction of Alderaan from the perspective of the Empire and stay with it and me not hate them. That's impressive. Which is really bizarre. Yeah, I almost never like that character, but I actually like Nash Windrider a lot. Which is very uncharacteristic of me. Not even just Nash, but I mean uh, Sienna Mm -hmm. as well. I I, I said Nash because he's actually from... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's even worse. That's like a step further out. Yeah. Yes. Um, hi, I'm back again. Uh, <laughs> I was the ATAT question last panel. Um, first off, uh, thank you. This has been awesome. Um, I guess a little background. Uh, I'm a conservative uh, history teacher, and um, obviously I don't want to teach my kids uh, you know, a, one opinion. Um, I tell them all the time that I want them to think critically. I want them to give them takeaways. I try to present both sides of the story, help them develop their own opinion. Um, I guess coming from the Star Wars perspective, um, what are like big messages you would want our kids to be being taught in the classroom today? That's a deep question. It is. <laughs> it's 
it is. I don't want to make like an off-the-cuff answer that I then go, that was stupid. And then you ruin all these kids' lives. Yeah. <laughs> think of the children, Holly. Think of the children. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, whatever. I think, I think part of it is that lack of cynicism, right? That earnestness mm-hmm. to get to the bottom of things. And then once the truth is realized... Mm-hmm. fight against the falsehoods, right? Like, look at yeah. the dark times between episode three and episode four where people slowly started to understand that Palpatine's cover story about what happened with the Jedi was a lie. There was no attempt at a coup. Um, the entire galaxy that, that stood idly by and let the Empire take over, that all was predicated on a lie. Right? They said that they were told the Jedi tried to take over. They tried to assassinate me. Look at all the bad things they were doing. And they were supposed to be keepers of the peace. Why did they have all these soldiers? Like, it was Palpatine misleading people. And then the, there was a group of people who said, that's not really what happened. We're going to seek out the truth there, whether that was Sagarera and rebels trying to find what was going on with the Death Star or whether that was anyone they were investigating to get the bottom of objective truth rather than truth that fits my opinion Mm -hmm. and they fought back against that and i think that's the biggest thing whichever side of the political spectrum you're on objective truth needs to be what you're looking for yes and i think as an as an extension of that you have to be careful of who is writing the books yes um (laughs) like um specifically have things available that aren't written by white guys. Um, and the slice of history changes a little bit. Like, if you have the history of the Empire according to Alderaan, it's going to be very different from the history of Alderaan according to Palpatine. Yeah. And I think that having that sort of diversification of sources is what really gets... Again, it, it's actually a plot point in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, because Claudia is a genius. Um, but like having that sort of diversification of opinions is what gives the rebels their strength. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Great. When I'm not busy tearing them apart. <laughs> if I could have them take one thing away, it would just be the message of hope, which is, in general, you know, a big theme across all of Star Wars. But you know that things do get better, and uh, to- together we can make them better. Awesome. Mine kind of ties into my view of history in general. I mean, mm-hmm. doing a history podcast, the thing I'm always preaching to people is that yeah. history is being made all the time, every day, by every one of us. Mm-hmm. And even though, like, what we tend to focus on in our podcast is the stuff that isn't always in your book that was written by the winning white dudes. Um, that everybody has the potential to change the course of history in some way. And Star Wars is nothing but examples of that. So I think to kind of contextualize the import of the individual in the bigger picture is one of the great lessons of Star Wars in terms of history and us moving forward as a human race. That was super profound. Boom! That's like Thank the you. one smart thing I'm going to say today, so I hope everybody memorized it. It's, it's a wrap now. Everybody gets one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Leia? <laughs> so uh, I read Catalyst in January, and it really kind of resonated with the current political situation, and I kind of felt like I'd been blinded like a lot of the people that were in Rogue One. Like, whoa, how did this happen to us? Like, what lesson can we take from that? Because, like, Catalyst kind of is, like, peeling back the layers and fight when it's small enough to fight like before it gets too big that's that's a pretty fair lesson to learn from catalyst yeah catalyst Um, had a lot of really interesting stuff that goes back to world war ii as well where you've got that race to the atom bomb the catalyst was going through and i love one of my favorite moments in that book is when they present galen with all of these lightsaber crystals and he's not asking questions about where the Empire got lightsaber crystals, like kyber crystals. Like, he knows where they came from. He knows that they're from Jedi that have been murdered. And he's not asking those questions. So, although Galen took that left turn into eventually doing what was right, he ignored it for a long time. Yeah, I, mean, I guess it's, it's about you know, not overlooking and glossing over the facts and not just believing everything that you're told or that you have been led to believe. Always ask questions. I guess if you feel like you're in a tunnel, you should probably get out of it. (laughs) I know sometimes um, you get sort of so focused on something and then, you know, on both sides, really. Um, And it's important every once in a while to sort of look up and be like, wait, everything about this is terrible. (laughs) So thank you for your question. 
All right. So forgive me. My ideas are kind of still half-baked, so hopefully they come out right. So are ours. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, so I guess first off, thanks for... It's been a great panel. I just graduated in political science, and obviously I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, so <laughs> this is right down my alley. And uh, that was that. I think uh, I think that was a really, really interesting discussion. And, you know, like I said before, I think there's definitely things I would have framed differently. I think I've learned to talk about the... Um, Jar Jar uh, thing a little bit more sensitively in that context than I had before, and uh, you know I uh, really hope that uh, you know in the future we can have these these sorts of conversations, frankly, and and uh, you know that we learn from them. So for everyone who is on the panel, uh, you can find uh, E.K. Johnston at uh, her Twitter account, uh, which is E.K. Johnston. You can just look her up that way. Matt Martin's Missing Words on Twitter. Holly's obviously the surly or surliest girl. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Swankmatron. For Full of Sith, please send us your emails and your voicemails. Go to fullofsith.com and, uh, you know, drop, uh, drop a voicemail on the SpeakPipe app. Drop us reviews anywhere you find, uh, you know, your podcasts, and we'd appreciate that mightily. I think next week we're going to be talking about Rebels, and uh, I really, really want to do a, a an emptying the inbox sort of episode for, with your voicemails and your emails before we get into full swing on Last Jedi season. So get all those in. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, uh, for, you know, Mike, who, who wasn't able to make it to Salt Lake Comic Con, for Holly, Matt, and uh, Kate, who are all there on the panel, I'm Brian Young, and the Force will be with you, always. If you'll not be meeting me, I'll close down for a while. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.